You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway Church. Good to be online again with you this week. Good news, we've got light this week, so I don't have to preach in the dark. Thank you for all of those who uh, dropped off desk lamps and clamp lamps for me this past week. <laughs> really humbled by that. Grateful. I don't have to use my iPhone, but we have got some light here in the gym this week. But uh, if you got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter one as we continue our study in Romans. And even as Brady said at the beginning, just a little parental disclaimer, much of the subject matter we're going to be dealing with in this section of Romans is going to be very heavy this week and very sensitive for young ears. And so if you've got kids in the room, you might want to consider uh, holding off on this message or putting the kids elsewhere for right now and coming back to this because we are going to deal with some explicit nature here in this text. But Romans chapter one, we're continuing to take this this, uh, diamond of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, and hold it up and chapter by chapter, really section by section, just pivoting it, turning it so we can see those different facets of what makes up the perfect sufficient work of what Jesus Christ has come to do for us through his death and resurrection. And so uh, that being said, we mentioned last week, we're looking at some of the darker facets uh, on the front end of this. We have to go through the bad news before we get to the good news. And this week again, is one of the darkest shades of that diamond that we're going to look at here in Romans chapter one. Now, that being said, uh, I do have to say, you know, one of my favorite uh, kinds of TV shows to watch with some of my family members every now and then are are shows on National Geographic, History Channel. I love like Drain the Ocean. If you've ever watched that show where they literally simulate a draining of the ocean so you can see what the the topography looks like and what's under there or documentaries about lost civilizations. And it's interesting and ironic for me because growing up, I hated history, hated history. And yet in my older years, I love it. I really love digging into the origins and really the backgrounds of, of where we've come from and, and what cultures and civilizations have looked like on earth. And one of the things that I've learned is that whenever you study history, uh, whenever you study just the movements of history, you're studying not just some utopian society. When you study Greece or Rome, or when you study the Persians or Babylonians, you're not studying some perfect utopian society that is a kingdom without end, that's still going on today, that you're marveling at at their perseverance. No, honestly, anytime we study a civilization or a history of a culture, um, we are studying them um, really as a rise and a fall of a kingdom. Uh, Ultimately, every kingdom you're ever gonna study on earth today is either an archeological dig or they're a show on the History Channel. Uh, There is no such thing as a civilization that's continued on in its current form. And the question is why? Why does every major kingdom that we've studied, why have they fallen? And that's a great question. There's an evangelical thinker in the early days uh, by the name of Francis Schaeffer, some of y'all may know. He wrote a book, in fact, I'd recommend this to you. How should we then live? Uh, It's a great read that I would highly commend there. But how should we then live? He he and his work showed how all of the study of history's cultures, whenever you study a a culture of history, that you're not to study them by their geography or by their military or by their economy or even by the personality of their leaders. Whenever you study 
a civilization, you first got to study it by their theology. That in a sense, the most important aspect of what it is a culture believes about God, that's the most important aspect. It's their theology. And as a civilization's theology goes, so goes their civilization. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has been showing us here in Romans chapter one. And and what we're gonna see even this week is how a, a civilization spirals downward, ultimately to its own death. And we're gonna look at what happens when a civilization, a people or a culture rejects God in exchange for alternative ideas. What is the ultimate end of that? If you were to ask yourself, man, fast forward the tapes right now and go, if there's one thing that would ever take down America or the West outside of a nuclear strike or something like that, if there's one thing, if you were to kind of fast forward and find a supernova date for us, what's the one thing that would take us out more than anything else? And it's exactly what you're gonna see in this text today is the death of a culture. Every civilization that's every kingdom that's ever died is gonna be rooted in what the Apostle Paul is gonna show us here this week. And what we will see is that the purest form of evidence that is exhibited in a behavior of a people, so much so that whenever you see it, it is confirmation of the fact that we have not only rejected God, it's not only confirmation of the fact that we deserve the just wrath of God. What we're gonna see today is that when we reject God and we live in the behaviors that are described here, it is evidence that the justice of God is already on us. It's not a future event, it is present here today. And this is what we're gonna see as we walk through these kind of difficult waters here. But again, what we've seen so far, chapter one, last week, we saw a bunch of R's, the fact that God has given us a revelation that everything that we can discern about some of the, not everything, but most things that we can discern about the attributes of God and who he is, is found in the works that he has created around us. A general revelation that what um, what we can see about God is plainly revealed through the works around us. But what man does is rather than seeing those attributes and falling on our face and worshiping the God who made the things around us, instead, what we see is a running in the other direction. Three R's we looked at last week. The first is, a, is that of rejection, is, a, is that man will reject God. We will choose to suppress the truth that is obvious about God and we will reject it. And then what happens is we begin reasoning away from God. We go inward rather than looking upward, we go inward and we begin to go inside ourselves and into the darkness of our own hearts and the futility of our own thinking to try to come up with some other explanation for what's around us other than God. And ultimately what a a country or a culture or a civilization will do, civilization will do is we'll replace God. We will find some alternative form to worship instead of the living God. Now this week, what we're gonna look at is the fourth and final aspect, that once a people rejects God, reasons away from God and replaces God, ultimately what comes next is the reprobation of God. Now that's a big fancy word. That's the big word for this week, reprobation. And we don't like that word. We don't even know what that word means, but it just sounds nasty. Like when we hear about a reprobate, we're like, ooh, that just sounds dark. And uh, what reprobation is ultimately is when we hand something over to what they want. That's what reprobation is. The reprobation of God is God handing a culture over to what it is that culture has said they wanted more than God. 
and God says, thy will be done. And you're gonna see this phrase three different times in this section. Just scan verses 24 through 32. You'll notice in verse 24, God gave them up. You'll notice in verse 26, God gave them up. You'll notice in verse 28, God gave them up or God gave them over. That's the idea of reprobation. And reprobation is when you allow something to head down a path of evil that that something wants to be a part of. It's someone with no sense of right or wrong, no sense of conscience. There is no restraint anymore that's holding a person back from going where they shouldn't go. It's a handing them over to go after their own will. And and you see this a lot, even in the heart of a parent. Um, When you think about a parent who has birthed or adopted a child, they have raised that child to live in accordance with that parent's decrees in that home for what is good and what is right, what will lead to that child's flourishing. And then at some point that child raises up and goes, I don't want it. And they reject the parent's decrees. And they say to the parent, even though this is what you want from me, that's not what I want from me. I want this direction. And the parent in that moment prays and pleads with that child, don't head down this path. This path that you're heading down, that's not the path to life. It's the path to destruction. Please don't go down this route. And and yet the child in that moment says, I don't care. I don't want what you want. I want what I want. And then what happens in that moment, the parent then says, okay, your will be done. And the parent hands that child over, not as an act of punitive retribution, not as of I'm just done with you, then get out of here. I hope, it, I hope you are a train wreck and you die. No, godly reprobation is a parent who hands their child over to their will out of love and of justice in hopes that that child will go down that road and come to the end of themselves and repent, come to their senses, recognize the futility in their thinking and repent and return to their parent and their their decrees for what human flourishing is. But all the while the parent does it with fully knowing that this decision might actually lead to costing their own child's life. And this is one of the most painful experiences a parent can ever have. Some of you watching right now know what it's like to have a wayward child and it's heartbreaking to have to experience that kind of reprobation. And yet as our heavenly father, our loving and just father God, this becomes one of the most painful doctrines in all of scripture, which is that of reprobation. The fact that God's wrath and God's justice isn't just something that's coming down the road one day for our behavior, but rather it's evidenced in our behavior, in our wanting to go a different way than God has decreed. And God's handing us over is his painful love and justice all at the same time to show that his ways really are best. And so what we're gonna see this week is just that that when a culture rejects God, God says, thy will be done. Let me know how this goes for you. And my prayer and my pleading is that you would go down this path only to come to your senses and return to me. So here's what we've seen again, with the absoluteness of God being rejected in verses 18 through 23, then the proverbial chain has been ripped off the pit bull now. And this thing is free to run wild. Let's see what life looks like apart from 
uh, God himself. Let's see what life looks like when we choose to go our own way. Starting in verse 24, I'm gonna give you six killer Ds. Gave you a bunch of Rs, rejection, reasoning, um, replacing, and now reprobation. But within reprobation, I'm gonna give you six killer Ds, D words here that are evidencing a culture's rejection of God and his just condemnation of them. And I'm gonna teach these a bit out of order. They're not gonna go in the progression of the text, but rather in the progression of the theology of the evolution of a degrading of culture. And so the first D that I want you to see right here is that of degrading passions. Degrading passions. You see this here in both verse 24 and verse 26. In verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He says, kind of restated again in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The New American Standard translates it degrading passions. See, once man decides to get rid of God and exchange God for the worship of other alternatives, that is called idolatry. That's what we looked at last week. The idea of idolatry, of worshiping anything lesser than God. But that idolatry is always simply evidencing the fruit of what first begins in the heart of man. This is where this begins. It's in our own hearts. Um, we can, that's the reason why we can tear down external idols all day long. But if we don't get after the idol that's in the heart, it's just gonna retransplant itself somewhere else. And so it's a heart issue here. And what God is doing, he's removing constraint. There is a constraint, a common grace of God called conscience that he's woven within us to restrain us from going where we should not go in the lust of our heart. But when we get to the point where we go, I don't care, God, I want what I want in here, not what you want, then God begins to lift that restraint. And it turns into these degrading passions. And it goes without saying that when man decides to oppose God, he will ultimately pursue the things that God is opposed to. And so Paul tells us here, this begins in the heart, an internal burning desire to crave the lusts of our flesh over and above the order and design that God has created for human flourishing. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 15, when he told us in Matthew 15, 18 and following, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person for out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. It's in here. It's not just out there. It's in here. James said the same thing in James chapter one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire, that which is in here. And that desire when it has conceived now gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Our sin is rooted in the corrupt desires of our heart, which is why Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. And so degrading and impure passions of the heart is the first thing that when we reject God, God begins to unhook and say, if that's what you want, then have at it. Now out of that, you need to know, I want you to notice whatever the heart desires, the mind will then affirm. 
which will then lead to the second D here that we see in verse 28, which is depraved minds. Not just degrading passions, but depraved minds. In verse 28, jump down there, Paul says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Literally, it's literally the Greek reads, they did not see fit to retain God in their thinking, God in their knowledge. They thought they were smarter than God. We thought we were better than God. We thought we were wiser than God. And so God says, okay, if you think your mind is smarter than mine, then I'm gonna hand you over to the futility of your mind. Literally, it's translated here, a base mentality something that is unsuitable or untested. This was a, a Greek word that was used of coins uh, that were subpar and did not pass the minting process. And so those coins, we would call them worthless and they were discarded. What Paul is saying here, theologically, what he's saying is he's talking about a depraved mind. A debased mind is a depraved mind. Minds that are totally and morally bankrupt unable to appropriate our thinking on where it rightfully belongs, the things above, and instead we settle for a subpar thinking on the things below. That because of our sin of the rejection of God, this is now what God gives us over to. It's called the noetic effect of sin on the mind that we are literally our sinfulness undermines our thinking towards God. And God says, if you don't want me, you think you're smarter, then I'm gonna hand you over to it and let's see how that goes. And when given the choice to use our intellects to dwell upon the infinite nature and attributes of an eternal God, we instead settle for a paint by number set and remedial math towards him. And so we're given over. So degrading passions leads to a depraved mind. And then notice when the heart and the mind go, the body always follows. And that's why thirdly, you're gonna see in verse 24, that of dishonored bodies dishonored bodies. In verse 24, Paul says, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In God's creation, he made our bodies to bear his image. This is part of the beautiful design of God. Such a design in our bodies, as we saw last week, that not only glorifies God and how our bodies are built, but they're also meant to glorify God and how our bodies are used. God has designed us that we would use our, our hands and our arms and our feet, our minds, everything in our body, our, even our legs here to, to steward the earth well, to serve our neighbors well and to bring glory to God. That's why Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6, that our bodies are his temple. They're not to be used for immorality, and gratifying the flesh, they're to be used for glorifying him. Paul will later say in Romans 12, that our bodies are an act or an offering of worship to God, that we would use every aspect of our bodies to bring glory to him. But because of our rebellion, because of our craving in our own heart to wanna go a different way than God, we instead use our bodies to harm and to hurt others, including ourselves to dive headlong into the self-gratification of our own wants and rather than stewing, stewarding our bodies in accordance with God's design, we simply choose to use our bodies to do with them whatever feels good to us. 
whether it be the gluttony at a buffet table or sexual immorality or murder or violence or self-harm or physical neglect, whatever it may be, whatever feels good for us rather than stewarding for him and the good of others. And it goes without saying that whenever our bodies are dishonored, the very next D that comes is inevitable and it is disordered sexuality. And you're gonna see this starting in verse 26 and 27, a disordered sexuality. Paul says that when God gives us up to dishonorable passions, what happens is that women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now you need to understand in verses 29 through 31, Paul is gonna list a number of behaviors that are evidencing our rebellion to God's design. A whole list that's coming. But here in verse 26 and 27, Paul pulls out one particular behavior, and that is the sin of homosexuality. Now you need to know, he doesn't pull this out and highlight this sin because somehow it's the summa of all sins, that somehow this sin is more deserving of God's wrath than all the 20 others listed in verses 29 through 31. That's not why he does this. Paul is pulling out this up front because this particular sin demonstrates the context of what Paul is talking about, about when we reject the created order and design that God has given for something that is unordered and unnatural to God's design. That's why Paul is highlighting this as an example. Now, two things that I wanna do right here. One is I wanna try to faithfully help exposit a biblical understanding of why homosexuality, according to Romans 1, is unnatural and is sinful. But at the same time, I also wanna speak to those who might identify with either being gay or lesbian or identify with same-sex attraction and the struggle therein and who have felt a sense of shame from the church and speak to what a biblical response for the church should be to those who are walking through this. So let me start though first with a biblical understanding here, what Paul is talking about, that is speaking out against the practice or the, the engagement of homosexual behavior. What Paul is trying to argue here is that in God's creative order, he has made us both male and female, perfectly co-equal and yet beautifully distinct image bearers of God who bring glory to God, male and female, but who also have a natural, who have a uh, complementary and compatible design with one another. It's interesting, by the way, if you go to the Hebrew terms in the Old Testament of man and woman and male and female, they are incredibly pictorial. Hebrew language is vastly different than a lot of our just linear English language. And uh, they're very pictorial words to try to show the, the complexities of what God is talking about. And so even when you get to Genesis one, like Adam's name, Adam means earthy because he was made from the earth. But when we talk about man and woman, the root words in Hebrew, the root of that man is ish, which means to be strong, 
But then when you go to the root of woman into the root word of isha, means to be soft and delicate. Two similar words right next to each other, but yet beautifully distinct in visible observations about a man and a woman. And in the same way, Paul does the same thing with male and female as well. In that same text in Genesis 1, I'm not Paul, I mean, Moses, as he records uh, the words of God, male and female. Male, the word zakar, literally means piercing one. And female, nekaba, means the pierced one. Now, I don't know how much, like, I need to go into this to explain some kindergarten anatomy right now. But what's being described right here is, is these complementary yet different but complementary pieces of a puzzle that fit together by God's design. They are designed to be this. These are the natural functions of God's creative design for male and female together men and women who are created by design to be a perfect biological and physiological complement to one another. I mean, that's why there is, forgive me here, a penis and a vagina, a sperm and egg. There is, there is strong and there is weaker. And these are, not, these are not bad things. These are good things by God's design. That is why God said, I will create one who is suitable for the other. And this is good. It is good. And thus homosexuality in this context of Romans 1 is a demonstration of what is unnatural, a direct effect of sins, uh, the sin of humanity's rejection upon God, usurping his creative order to say, I know this is what you've designed, but this is what I want in here. And I want to chase after this, even though it is not part of God's design. And we will exchange his creative order for that which is disordered out of the own degrading passions of our heart, the own depraved minds, and then our body that has been handed over. You know, one of the common arguments I quite hear all the time, because if you're a, a left-leaning, if you're a uh, affirming church in today's culture, you got to go, how do you get around this passage? And the way that a lot of folks will try to do biblically is to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to try to explain away what these arguments are. And one of the most common arguments that's used is Paul doesn't use the common word for homosexuality here. That's why you don't see it translated as you do in other places, anytime here, the word homosexual, because Paul chooses not to use his word. So therefore Paul had a different argument. He's not talking about homosexuality here. He's rooting this, this argument in other forms of deviant immorality that he saw in Corinth when he was writing this. And the truth is, is yes, the common word's not used here because the common word is too vague. Paul chooses to communicate a word here that is the most explicit language for homosexuality that you can use in the Greek. It's the term arsenokoitis, which literally translated means men in men or males in bed. It's much more descriptive than a general understanding of the word homosexuality. And in fact, it translates here this phrase, men committing shameless acts with men. The word shameless is the term askimonen. It's the word schema, which we get the word scheme from. It means form. The word ah, or the article ah in Greek means no. It, together it means no form. 
That's what Paul's speaking to. It's the idea of something that is disordered. It's unaligned with the original plan. It does not take the same shape and form as what God's original blueprint was for sexuality. That's what Paul is speaking to here. And when he says the phrase, they receive the due penalty of their error, Paul is simply stating that when one gives themselves over to an unnatural act that goes counter to God's design for human flourishing, there will always be a natural consequence to that, a recompense that will come out um, from living a life that runs counter to God's creative order. It will not end in human flourishing, but instead will end rather in corruption, whether it's emotionally or morally or physically whether it be in forms of pain or disease or even the consequence of a lack of God's creative order of procreation. Remember, Paul's writing from Corinth when he's writing this letter, one of the most explicit sexually deviant places in the entire Roman empire. And he's got exhibit A all around him and he's using this to demonstrate what happens when we rebel against God's design for human flourishing. One of the other arguments that I hear quite often is Jesus never explicitly condemns homosexuality in the New Testament. You know what he does do? Is he affirms God's creative order. In Matthew chapter 19, verses four through six, Jesus said this, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus was emphatic that God's creative design for male and female in the context of heterosexual covenant marriage is God's design for sexuality. And anything apart from that is a deviation from it. So just like the rest of the list of behaviors that Paul is about to walk through next, the practice of homosexuality is evidence of the justice of God at work to a humanity that says, I don't want you, I want what I want. And God out of his love and his justice hands them over to it. Now, that being said, church, I need to speak here for just a moment because I recognize there are many who are watching right now who you yourself may struggle or may identify with either same-sex attraction or even in the engagement of the practice of homosexuality as gay or lesbian. And certainly what I wanna tell you is that the church, while seeking to defend this truth about homosexual practice, has had a pretty, track, pretty bad track record uh, in our history of how we have treated those around us who have identified as gay or lesbian or even those who battle the temptation of it. We have used hateful speech and partiality in our own hearts towards our brothers and sisters. We have singled out this sin as somehow the chief sin of all sins, that somehow we feel this is more worthy of God's wrath than all the other 20 things we're gonna see in just a moment in verses 29 to 31. We gotta understand church, as one theologian put it, homosexuality no more sends one to hell than heterosexuality sends one to heaven. It's not the basis of what we are predicated upon. It is our faith in Jesus Christ. Now this may be evidence of rejection that's in there or affirmation, but it is not the sin of all sins. 
Only in Jesus Christ is our salvation secured. And so church, yes, we must contend for God's design in the midst of an ever degrading culture. But at the same time, we have got to do a better job of loving our neighbor than we have of not making our neighbors who identify with us feel they are somehow less than human. And so rather than just trying for us to do some sort of conversion therapy, where we just wanna focus on behavior modification, if only I could just get a gay person to be straight, then everything would be okay. We gotta understand we have to go to the heart in this issue for that is where all of our idols begin in the heart, not just in the fruit of our behavior. The remedy for homosexuality is not heterosexuality. The remedy for homosexuality is holiness in God and his righteousness through a submitted heart that can only come by our trust in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross and his grace that extends to all. To trust that his design over and above our own feelings leads our lives into flourishing. Can I just tell you that if you find yourself identifying with same-sex attraction, first of all, what I wanna just tell you is this. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. I want you to hear that phrase, no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. You are not a freak. You are not some misfit for having the broken version of sexuality and your temptations. We're all broken. We all have broken versions of sexuality within us. And there are certain manifestations and different ones. This does not make you some outlier freak. You are broken like the rest of us are broken. And you need to know this, in this text in Romans 1, Paul is not castigating men and women here for the mere temptation or the mere attraction that one might feel in their own flesh. It's not what he's doing, but rather he's speaking to the one who would give themselves over to the practice of it. There is a difference between being tempted and wrestling in that temptation and battling that versus actually handing yourself over and saying, this is what I'm gonna do. Nobody's gonna talk me out of it. I'm running this way. There's a vast difference between those two. And with that in mind, you need to understand your identity is not rooted in your sexuality. My identity is not rooted in my heterosexuality. I cannot put my identity in my wife or in my parenting or anything else, just like we cannot put our identity in the brokenness of our sexuality. Our identity has to be rooted in Jesus Christ. Our joy comes from being in him and him alone. And until that is the all satisfying goodness and joy of our lives, then nothing else ever will be. And so the road though to healing and transformation is not through behavior modification, but rather through a heart that is submitted to the power of Jesus Christ, who by through his death on the cross has forgiven our debts. His resurrection has allowed the Holy Spirit to come in and give us new life, regenerating our hearts, yielding now our our hearts to want him rather than the things of our flesh. Remember again, Paul is writing this from Corinth with men and women who practice all sorts of deviant sexual behavior. And yet remember Paul's words. And I want you to remember this for anybody that's been walking in any shame and condemnation. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, when he said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, 
You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Church, listen, God can redeem anything. There is no sin that God cannot not only wipe out and cancel out, but change our hearts towards. That with the struggle that we have in this flesh to want to obey God and seek his design is not in vain. For one day we know this corrupt tent that we're in, the brokenness of our flesh and the temptations around us, they will be cast off. We will receive new bodies and new minds and new hearts, and we will be made whole in the presence of Jesus Christ. So this struggle, this labor is not in vain. And again, I want you to hear this, lest we think that this sin is the only sin that evidence is the rejection of God. I want you to notice the just wrath on the rest, starting in verse 29 and 31. If you want a fifth D word here, it's just disobedient behavior. Any disobedient behavior is a reflection of everything that's come before it. Paul is about to drop a list here, just a sample list of 20 vices of uh, human sin. All of them, are simply types of fruit that come from one tree. That tree is summarized at the beginning of verse 29 when Paul says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. It is unrighteousness that we possess, which is remember, go back to verse 17 and 18, which is what makes the gospel so beautiful because it's the righteousness of God that we need. But apart from the righteousness of God, what we are left with is the unrighteousness of our own hearts. And Paul shows how this evidences by listing 20 things right here. And he could go immensely further than these, but here's the deal. If there's anyone thus far reading this going, yeah, that's those people over there. Those are the ones who struggle. Those are the ones deserving the wrath of God. Then Paul's gonna drop this list in 29 through 31. And if there is even just one thing in this list that you and I have committed, Paul's gonna say, we are justly condemned for high, high treason towards God. Listen to what Paul says here. We don't have time to drill down on all of these, but he says, we are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, Murder, and remember murder, Jesus dismantles murder in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you, even, if you even have hatred or anger towards somebody, you've committed murder. We're all guilty. Strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, evidences of all those who've rejected God. He even shows us three aspects of pride here by being insolent, haughty, boastful, where we think we're better than God. Inventors of evil, man, that one's crazy. We're not only just people who commit evil, we come up with ingenious ways in which to do it. I've watched enough Dateline in my life to know that we are some very creative sinners out there. This is the nature of our depraved hearts. And he goes on and disobedience to parents. That's always the funnest one for me in this list. It's like insolent, haughty, boastful, doesn't do their chores. Like somehow this is where Paul goes right here. And then he finishes with four adjectives indicating the voids that are in our lives. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul could go on and on, but he lays before us here evidences of the depravity of our own humanity. If you see any of these embraced and tolerated and practiced in a society or civilization, it is evidence of a people who have rejected God and have been handed over to their own lusts. 
And the end result is your sixth and final D word there in verse 32, and it's simply death, death. Paul says in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die because they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Paul will say in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Paul is laying out the argument here of why we have a need for a righteousness other than ours, because we are filled with every form of unrighteousness. And the merit that we have received for our unrighteous hearts and actions is that of death, alienation from God. Paul lists there in verse 32, three things that proves a culture has rejected God and has been handed over justly to their own sin. And they are just years away now from their own archeological dig or story on the history channel. Three things, you notice them? One, a people who know the decrees of God in their own conscience. And they know that the result is death. We know this is not what God has designed, but secondly, we choose to do them anyways. Like that's evidence that we're rejecting God. We know what they are. We see it in creation. And yet we say, I don't care, God, I'm doing it myself. But thirdly, not only do we practice it, but we stand and we give hearty approval and applause to a culture that does it as well. How do you know when a culture has degraded and has been handed over by God, when we are throwing parades in the streets for what we should be having funerals over? When we are passing legislation for that which we know is unlawful. Like that's when a culture has been handed over in reprobation. All of it, why? Go back to verse 25 as Paul summarizes everything he's been talking about because we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We know what God has made. We just don't want it and we reject it. And God says, if that's what you want, then your will be done. But this is not gonna lead towards life. It's gonna lead towards death. These six Ds that we've looked at, they're like chains to us, to the holiness of God that leads to our flourishing. It's a good enslavement, but yet we don't want it. And so we rip off the chains of our own heart and go, I want what my heart wants. And we rip off the chain of our own minds. I wanna think how I wanna think, not how you think God. And I rip off my body and I rip off my sexuality from God's holiness. And I rip off all these behaviors. And ultimately the final chain is God handing us over to our own death. We are meant to come to the end of this passage and see our need for his righteousness. Y'all, sin is so dangerous. Sin is like a hollow point bullet. It goes in small in Genesis three and it comes out massive in Romans one. All of us are guilty and have fallen short of the holiness of God. We should be on our face at the end of chapter one, begging and pleading for God's mercy to enter in and restrain us from going where we should be. This is why Calvin called this total depravity. It's not utter depravity. It's not as being as bad as we could be because God has given us restraint. But when we choose to go our own way, that restraint slowly lifts off into the degradation of a culture. So do y'all see why this is here? We are in need of a righteousness. Now I want you to tell you this, 
to a Jewish reader that was reading this, one who is steeped in the law of God and viewed as the covenant people of God. They would be sitting here at the end of chapter one going, get them, Paul, sick them, get that Gentile. Go get, those, go get those pagan heathens out there that are out there living on the streets of Rome, practicing their immorality. Yeah, they're justly deserve the wrath of God. And what Paul's going to do starting next week, is he's gonna turn now from the irreligious to the religious. And Paul's gonna look at them and you say, oh, so you think you're worthy of the righteousness of God and they are not? I'm gonna tell you, you're actually more worthy of God's wrath because you didn't have just the works of God as your base of knowledge. You had the very word of God in pen and ink about who God is and you still rejected him. And so next week, we're gonna look at the, the sin of self-righteousness, not just licentiousness, but, but self-righteousness. And by the end of chapter two, we are all going to be screaming for the mercy of God. But can I just give you encouragement right now? That righteousness, that mercy has come. It has come in Jesus Christ. Chapter three, verse 21 is coming. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the sin, to absorb his wrath upon us, to take our sin and rebellion towards him and cancel out the penalty of sin by his own blood and give us in exchange his righteousness so that we can stand before the holiness of God. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, I plead with you, turn away from your own selfish hearts and your own desires and turn and align yourself towards God's and receive Jesus Christ so that you can be washed. You can be cleansed just like the Corinthians, just like the Romans, that we might experience the newness of God's regeneration in our hearts and conformity to him. Let me pray towards that end. Father, what a heavy passage this is to walk through, to see the reality of our own depravity, to see the heaviness of our own sin. This is not just those people out there. Oh God, if that is what we read coming away from this, we, you know we have read it wrong. Help us to not just see those people in Romans 1, help us to see ourselves. This is us on trial and our own conscience and the creation around us is testifying against us that we have fallen short of your glory. God, help us to turn our hearts towards Jesus Christ, that we might receive the salvation that is found in him, the new life that is found in him that would lead to your glory and our flourishing in you. We pray this in Jesus' great name, amen.